So it was probably around my junior year of high school, right around the time Chris talked about last week when he was kind of coming to a new sense of his faith, that I was increasingly realizing that I was kind of walking away from mine. I mean, I still looked Christian. I went to youth group. I went to church every week. I think I was even president of the youth group, perhaps. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, I was feeling the sense that this faith that had been mine was increasingly not mine. I wasn't feeling it. As a 17-year-old kid, I, I was looking at Christianity and I was seeing what I saw as a bunch of inconsistencies. I saw a religion where I was a lot more sure of what we were against than what we were for. Uh, where high-profile Christian leaders were being exposed for scandals. Anybody remember Tim, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker with the, the eyelashes and the crying and the right? We're seeing these high-profile leaders just fall from their towers. Where I had to accept the idea of a literal seven-day creation where I was rejecting all of the truth of scripture, where the only social issue we ever talked about engaged in, in, in the midst of you know, famines and storms and wars and all these other things that were happening in the world, the only thing I ever saw Christians talking about was the issue of abortion. And the primary tool that I saw Christians use to accomplish any good at all was politics. And then I went to a Christian college and it was, it was largely a lot of the same. You know, it was this hyper-focus on a few issues while sort of turning a blind eye to all these other issues that scripture talked about. And yet I didn't see Christians talking about them. Let me be clear, you know, my parents did everything right. They were incredible role models of Christianity. They sent me to the very best schools. They were super involved in church. They did family devotions. They were awesome. And I'm not just saying that because they're sitting in that row right there. <laughs> and this would be super awkward. I don't know how they could have done anything differently. It was just that I looked at Christianity as a whole. And as I brought my questions, I was met with the sort of inflexibility, the sort of rigid doctrine. And I felt like unless I'm willing to buy into all of it, the doctrine, the politics, the, the inconsistent ethic that values one life over another. This is the Gulf War era. And as I remember even as a Christian wrestling with how should Christians respond in seasons of war? How should Christians respond when one country attacks another country? As I wrestled with questions like, okay, so how do we help the poor? How, how do we address these unwanted pregnancies that are resulting in, in, in an overwhelmed adoption system and foster system? With these kids that are in the cycle of poverty and despair, how do we address that? And I felt like in so many places, I was just being met with hard lines. The answers I saw were a lot more political than they were theological. And I came to the point as a 17-year-old kid where I said, I don't think I'm interested in Christ if it means having to be a Christian. I'm not sure there was a clear point at which I said, I'm out, I'm not interested. But I know at some point, I got to that point. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in that experience. I think many of us have been there or are there now or will be at some point. 30 years later, those issues that I observed back then in the 80s church, those are no better now. We are more divided and more polarized. These issues have gotten even worse, and Christians today are seen even more as sort of anti-joy, anti-fun, anti-abortion, anti-science, anti-immigration, anti-homosexual. And more and more people in our culture are looking at Christianity from the outside and saying, not interested. I don't see the value, I don't see the point, I don't see the win. In fact, as I look at Christianity, I don't see all that much that seems very attractive. 
about this faith. And it's not just outsiders. According to Barna Research, in 2011, they said that 59% of young adults with a Christian background had dropped out of church at some point in their 20s. That's 11 years ago. That number now is something closer to 70%. So what do we do? I mean, does Christianity need like an extreme makeover? Make it look more attractive? You know, is this all about positioning and spin, playing edger music, removing all the talk that's uncomfortable, removing, you know, our, our powerful, like softening our stance on the issues? Is that, is that the answer? I mean, the reality is, Christianity is increasingly less attractive because I think Christianity is increasingly less like Christ. In an age where tribalism seems to mark so many groups, you know, this idea of people attracting people who think exactly what they think and say exactly what they think, and it becomes an echo chamber. We don't want to be a people who are becoming more and more like one another. We want to become a people who, who, who are growing more and more like Christ an authentic community together, more like the, the church that Christ established. And so we're doing this series, and we're calling it More Jesus, Less Blank. And, and the more we brainstorm, the, the more things can fill in <laughs> that blank, right? Chris last week introduced us to this, this paradigm, to this thing that we call the continuums. And people are like, oh, that's brilliant. And I'm like, they've actually been around from the beginning. <laughs> we just keep morphing them and developing them. But we've realized that becoming more like Christ, there is, it's not about one prayer. It's not about one moment. It's about growing and maturing in a host of different areas of our life. It means discovering a more meaningful walk with God, connecting in profound relationships and community. It means serving one another as Christ served the church and served the, the people in his life. It means giving as God intended, reaching out to a hurting world in the name of Jesus. And it means passing on a brightly lit, well-fueled torch to that next generation, to the 70% that are walking away. It's not one step, it's not one prayer, it's a journey. They were on together, and we invite you to join us in that journey of becoming more like Christ in community with one another. Chris last week said that of these continuums, he said the discover continuum is the keystone habit for all of the rest. He said you get this right and the other pieces fall into place. You get this wrong and you can't do it. I mean, the math doesn't work out on it. As you progress, all the other ones begin to fall in place. This discover continuum, the idea of moving from not interested to curious, of moving to in Christ and then becoming a purposeful witness and then eventually becoming a disciple maker, and all of us friends are somewhere on this continuum, whether we know it or not. We know that in, in this congregation, there are people that are at that very early stage, that curious stage, that stage of discovering, or perhaps rediscovering these things that are new or new again. As you return to explore this, you're curious into that, I would say, welcome to the journey. <laughs> Join us as we figure these things out together. We also know that there are many of us who probably at some point moved from not interested to curious and from curious to in Christ. We prayed a prayer, we, we got baptized, we had that moment, and then perhaps we got stuck a little bit. We didn't move beyond that moment. We had prayed a prayer, but we didn't move beyond that. And we know firsthand that there are people, part of our congregation, who have 
who have moved into that place of living purposefully as everything in their life is seen as an opportunity to witness to the power and the majesty and the glory of the kingdom of God. And they are making disciples. But I'm also convinced that there are some among us that really are at that place of not interested. And maybe you've had sort of a bad experience as a kid and you walked away as soon as you could. Maybe you grew up in this and at some point you just stopped seeing the relevance. Stopped being able to sort of justify the cost of the inconsistency against the value that it actually brought to your life and to society. Maybe you've been hurt and you never want to risk being hurt like that again. Maybe you're here just to please your wife or your husband. Maybe you're here because your parents force you to in the moment that you don't have to go to church, you're never going again. I don't know what it is. For whatever reason, you're at this place of not interested. And I want to speak specifically to you. I've been there. I know what that feels like. And I want to invite you, as others in my life invited me, to re-explore that. To, to be willing to discover the interesting. There's a place to write that in your notes. You may not be interested, but that doesn't mean that this stuff isn't interesting, <laughs> okay? The Bible's claims, for instance, are interesting. They are. You may not agree with them, but you can't disagree that they're interesting. The Bible, for instance, claims that creation itself reveals the very nature of God. Romans 1, starting in verse 19, says these words, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, the eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. This book claims that creation itself, at least in part, reveals who God is in the way that he created. In fact, the creation story itself in real ways reveals the character, the nature of the creator. And the Bible has a very unique creation story, unique among the pantheon of creation stories that are out there. I mean, read the first couple of chapters of Genesis. It clearly states that God made the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, right? But there's a problem there. See, if you've ever been to any classes in science, you know that's not true, right? I mean, we know science proves that the world is millions and billions and whatever, yada, yada years. Well, so right there, there's a disconnect. What do we do with that? I mean, do we have to either accept a literal seven-day creation or reject the Bible? Do we have to be anti-science to follow Jesus? And maybe it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you, but I'll tell you, it is. In that same Barna research, when they asked these Christians, what are the top 10 reasons that you are walking away from the church? Listen to the first couple. Perceptions of young Christians. They say Christians, their observations. Christians are too confident they know all the answers. Three out of 10 young adults with a Christian background feel that churches are out of step with the scientific world we live in. Another one quarter embrace the perception that Christianity is anti-science. And nearly that same proportion said that they have been turned off by the creation versus evolution debate. Furthermore, the research shows that many science-minded young Christians are struggling to find ways of staying faithful to their beliefs and to the professional calling in science-related industries. So what do we, 
What do we do with that? I mean, do we give up the fight for creationism? No. But let me suggest this, and I know that this might be controversial for some of you. I would propose for your consideration that the book of Genesis isn't primarily a science book. It's a theology book. The author of these creation stories would have had very little interest in explaining the science behind creation. They were explaining the creator behind creation. They're not that concerned with the how the world was created. They are concerned mostly with who created it. And we're willing to see it that way. When we're willing to approach it that way, when we're willing to even teach it that way, we take the teeth out of the science, anti-science, creation, evolution debate. It's not about the how, it's about the who. That was the major point that the author was trying to communicate. Their primary point is not that God did it in seven days or seven billion days. I, I think the author would say the, that God could have done it in an instant. What they're communicating is the nature, the character of the creator. The author wants us to understand who this God is by how he chose to reveal himself in creation, how he views that creation, and how this God is so different than any of the other gods of the day. The author, for instance, is communicating, the sun is not a god. <laughs> this god made the sun. <laughs> the ocean is not a god. My god, the one true god, made that ocean. The wind is not a god, and on and on and on. The community that God provided all that we need. We're used to that message, but that would have been radical to the very first people who encountered this. So many of the creation narratives have these gods who are creating because they have a need. They need people to bring them food, to bring them riches, to bring them all the different things they need. This narrative is exactly the other way around. God says, I'm gonna give you everything you need to eat, everything you need to be happy, everything you need to be in communion with one another and with me. That's interesting. <laughs> that, that this God, this one God, who created everything by speaking it into being. He didn't work, he didn't toil, he just spoke it. There's nothing, and then bam, he created it. I mean, it's like this big bang, if you will, <laughs> right? And then suddenly there was, he spoke it into existence. The world was created. They're communicating that this God is good. He created not out of loneliness, not out of need, not out of jealousy. He created out of love and a desire to be in relationship with his creation. Then he looked at all that he had created, and he said, it is good. You are good, you are good, the trees are good, the fish are good. It's all good. That is just a very different narrative than the world was used to. They were communicating that God gave to humanity dominion over all of it, leadership, rulership, to steward all of creation, and yet at the same time they communicated that God still wanted to be a part of this. This is not a God who is distant. This is a God who wanted to be engaged in his creation, in relationship with his creation. It was we who broke that relationship by making it about us, by trying to be like God, by deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. And friends, we're still doing that today, arbitrarily deciding what we think is good and what we think is evil. But then, in that very same story, comes a promise from the Creator that one day, 
all of this will be restored. That one day God would send someone who would stomp on the head of that serpent, crush the head of that serpent, who would restore all things and make all things new again. A story that says that God made us in his own image, that we are bearers of that image in this world, even in our brokenness. That's unique, that's interesting. Reread Genesis 1 through 3. I challenge you to find a better, more compelling, more interesting origin story. And then the rest of the Bible, all 66 books, are the story of God doing exactly that. The story of God restoring the world to himself. And what's interesting to me is that the, the characters in those stories, and virtually every story in those 66 books, these characters, they're these broken, flawed, imperfect people. But God chooses them anyway and then uses them to accomplish these amazing, beautiful things. And some of them are totally despicable. I mean, we're talking about the murderers and the thieves and the prostitutes and the adulterers. And God says, I choose you. I'm going to make something beautiful from that. I'm going to make beauty from ashes. I'm going to make bones into armies. We sang those words. The whole book is that story. That's interesting. It's almost like God wanted us to know that he can restore all things and all people, no matter how broken. And then in the book of Revelation, the very end of the story, the very end of the book, God once again creates, making a new heaven and a new earth and a new tree of life. And everything is set to rights. There's no more war, no more tears, no more sickness, no more death, no separation. And then God, the creator, for who from the beginning desired to be with his people, to be with his creation, will once again dwell among his people. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but you have to admit that's interesting. That's an interesting, compelling story. The Bible's full of these audacious claims. Here's another one. The Bible claims that this creator God who, who wove it all together, will weave it all together again, wants to be known by you. That's, that's crazy, right? But it, but it says it in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, 11. Probably most of us have heard this. We've seen it on posters. We've, we've read it in greeting cards, right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord's. Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Very few of us are probably familiar with what comes next, though. He says these words, verse 12. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Psalm 34 says these words, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Taste. It's this idea of like, taste test God. <laughs> taste and see he is as good as it looks. Try it. Matthew 7, Jesus says these words, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Everyone seeks, everyone who seeks, finds. That's God's promise. These are the words of Jesus. God wants to be found. God wants to be known. Think about how crazy that is. Think about how interesting that is. There's, there's one character 
who we see in these stories who's not presented as flawed, who's not presented as imperfect, of course, the, the person of Jesus. What do we do with Jesus, a man who claimed to be sinless, who claimed to be so much more than that as well, right? Who made some audacious claims. The claims, Jesus' claims are interesting. Jesus claimed to be the son of God, claimed to be one with the father, the king of this whole different kingdom, which was somehow a kingdom that was coming and yet was already among us as well. A kingdom in which people love their enemies and pray for the people that persecute them. A kingdom in which people sell what they have and they give it to the poor. A kingdom where the poor and the orphan and the blind and the sick find hope. Where those who are bound by sickness and by prison doors can be set free. Where the proud are brought low and the humbled are lifted up. Where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Where the only way to save your life is to lose it. Jesus claimed that he was God and that he was the only way to God and the only means of salvation was through him. That's interesting. The person of Jesus, what do we do with that? This person of Jesus who separated history into two halves, B.C. and A.D., what do we do with him? He's either what he claimed to be or he isn't. And if he isn't, then he's diabolical for making the claims that he made. But what if he is? What if he is who he claimed to be? There's a place to write this, you know. I think history's claims about Christianity are interesting. If you want to look at the church history, do it. But I encourage you, look at all of it. I mean, yeah, the church has got some skeletons in the closet. We've had some hard times in which Christianity has been twisted, right? I mean, think about the Crusades, and think about colonialism and the forced conversions, America's own history of witch burning. I think some of you probably have histories of going to Catholic school as kids and mean nuns and rulers over the knuckles when you didn't listen, right? Or far more tragically, the stories that have emerged over the last decades of clergy who abused children. There's a whole lot in history that is dark, and I think we have a responsibility as the Church of Christ to, to lean into those, to look into those, to acknowledge that those things have happened and to learn from our worst moments and to put safeguards in place to make sure that those worst moments never happen again. But I would also ask you to not define Christ by his church's worst moments, but rather see Christ in the church's best moments. And there are many, many, many more of those. When we've seen the church doing its best, it's been when she is most like Christ. Chris said last week, and I thought it was profound, so much of what is good that we take for granted came about because of these followers of Jesus who were becoming more like him. The church, when it's at its best, is leading the charge in building orphanages and hospitals and education centers of elevating the role of women and the role of the poor. The church, when it's best, is working for the kingdom values in this world as it is in heaven. I would add to what he said, as the church becomes more like Jesus, the more good it does in this world. As the church becomes more like the world, the more damage it does. You may not agree with that assessment, but you can't dismiss that history thinks Christianity is interesting. 
I want to share with us right now and those of you online the story of one of our people. This is the story of Jade Brandt, a man who started off far from God. And hear a little bit of his journey of moving from not interested to curious and even farther down the road. Let's watch. I had a positive feeling towards Christianity. I didn't really have a lot of positive feelings towards most Christians. I thought they tended to try and separate themselves from everybody else and they kind of felt a little bit like they thought too highly of themselves. I started really thinking that some sort of faith might be important after I had kids. And it wasn't for me that I was interested. I just realized that picking and choosing what you thought was moral is a very difficult and nerve-wracking endeavor, and I didn't want that for them. So I actually did research. I looked into everything, you know, Buddhism. I looked into Judaism. I looked, I even looked a little bit into Islam, looked into Christianity, and, you know, kind of mulled this over for years until there was a year where we attended a funeral and then a baptism. And then I started thinking, okay, let's, let's settle down and start trying to give something a shot. Things started changing for me in my outlook on Christianity when I started kind of looking into the history of Christianity. And, you know, I always thought it was one of those things where Jesus was probably a made-up guy, or, or if he was, everything was real overstated on what happened. It seems like the ancient writers were in awe of the Christians' willingness to help others and the willingness for them to sacrifice themselves for others. And that's, that's pretty enticing. Once I started realizing that, uh, you know, I mostly, I, you know, I believe that this Jesus guy existed. Okay, I can, I can do that. And, and I, I believe the, the, the histories, I, you know, even, you know, a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, you can follow it along in the history. I believe that, you know, you can follow it up with research. All right, that's cool, I got that. There's no doubt about it that, uh, that the early Christians made a huge impact on the Roman Empire. You can't debate that on any level. So, uh, okay, I think I believe 51% at this point. So I'm starting to hear some scripture. We're going to church, starting to hear it in context a little bit, and starting to watch people interact with it. And it's like, okay, not all these Christians are bad people. That's, that's kind of cool. You know, I, I knew that before because I liked my grandparents. They were wonderful. Christianity actually started meaning something to me when I started realizing I didn't have to 100% believe in it to follow it. No, I started, uh, you know, just kind of mulling things over and I started doing research because that's what I do. I'm a geek. So I'm doing research in the, uh, this bit of scripture or how does this apply to things and I'm still at the beginning looking at it for, it's like, am I okay with my kids learning this stuff? And then it's like, no, I, I'm pretty okay with me learning this stuff too. So let, let's go all in. And there was a point, I don't, there was no real point, but all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm just gonna have to get the kids baptized. And you know, I haven't been baptized either. So we all three got baptized on the same day. There was never really uh, one moment when I had the epiphany, I'm a Christian now. It was. Uh, People always talk about slippery slopes as if they're bad things, but I actually fell on a slippery slope into Christianity. And tell me that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I love it. Like, well, I believe 51%. Uh, I'm going to lean into that. But this, this is this story. This, this is a man who, who leaned in and, and saw the curiosity. I love the idea of slippery slopes is a good thing. <laughs> like I said, we are all somewhere on this continuum. We all have some place that we are in relation to this. Maybe some of us uh, need to recognize that we're stuck. Some of us were stuck at that not interested place. And I want to invite you to take that small step of turning even slightly toward God. Even slightly toward an openness of being less closed, of saying, I'm open to at least exploring what this is. We believe that experiencing Jesus will confirm and overturn everything you thought you knew about Christianity. Chris said that last week. He told the story of Paul when he experienced Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that was confirming and overturning everything he thought he knew about Christianity. If you're not interested, I'm, I'm not asking you to say yes. But I'm inviting you to not say no. Get curious. Don't get stuck at not interested. Don't get stuck at not interested. I stayed stuck there for a whole lot of years, frankly. Finishing college, getting married, starting to build my career. It wasn't until a couple of people, including my wife, my sister, some good friends, invited me to re-explore this Christianity thing that I once again began to be curious, to look at who this person Jesus was, who he claimed to be, to see what scripture actually had to say and not just interpret Jesus through all the heritage and the baggage and the cultural religious baggage that I brought to the conversation. If you've walked away from Christ, I wanna invite you to explore again. But this time, don't start with Christianity. Start with Christ. When I was on this journey, I shared with a friend that I was just struggling because I, I wasn't able to see Christ through all of these, these lenses that I was struggling with. And he, he smiled and he pulled out a napkin. He drew a diagram that looked a lot like this. He said, you are trying to get through, you're trying to see Christ through all these things, through these social issues, through the politics, through the religion, through the baggage that you bring, through all these different things. And you know what? It is really hard to see Jesus through all those layers. What if instead you start at Jesus? What if you start with Christ and then work your way out from there through these other layers, interpreting religion through the lens of Christ, having your politics informed and shaped by Christ and not the other way around? What if the baggage that you have, if you look at it through the lens of what Christ called us to and invited us to, and the rest has been smooth sailing, and I've never had a hiccup since. The end. <laughs> no, not really. But it was an incredibly helpful device at the time for me, and I hope it is for you, uh, to see that I've got this turned around. I'm never going to see it if I keep looking at it this way. I had been in ministry for a number of years when I had sort of another not interested moment. I came to the point where I realized that some of the theology of the church that I was at was really tough around the idea of predestination. Like I had a really hard time getting my head around if, if that's who God is, then I don't know that I can embrace that. I don't know that I, can, that I can worship that God. If that's who God is, then I think I'm not interested. And again, I had a friend intervene. <laughs> I'd say, there are so many resources. And to show me these books, and show me these things to say that there are so many people who love Jesus and who love scripture who have interpreted this particular issue a little bit differently. Let me show you the broad range of what is orthodox within Christianity. And suddenly I, I went back into the journey. I, I started at the beginning and I got curious again. 
What are the ways that I can understand this truth that is so troubling? What does scripture really have to say about that? I jumped back into the continuum. His invitation to once again get curious to explore what scripture really has to say. You see, while this is a continuum, I think it's not nearly this linear, right? Where you progress from one to one and one and you never go backwards. There may be issues that you encounter, experiences you have, like I had, that knock you back. Let's say, if then, I'm not interested. And that's okay, get curious again. Maybe you've already been there. Maybe you've already had an issue or an experience that caused you to walk away from God. Maybe you have prayed and prayed and prayed for a healing that never happened. And you said, I'm not interested in a God who can't or won't heal. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that is just so broken and for years you have wanted that relationship to be restored. You've tried so hard to have that relationship be restored. You've prayed so diligently and earnestly for God to work in this. And you said, I'm not interested in a God who isn't willing to facilitate restoration. Maybe you believe in a God who is love and who wants everybody to love one another and doesn't want to have any boundaries on anything. So if you try to tell me that there's, there's boundaries around who I can love and who I can marry, then I'm not interested in that God. I get it. Those are difficult issues. I would invite you to what my friends invited me to, to my wife and my sister invited me to. Get curious. Lean into what scripture really has to say. Start with the person of Jesus and look what scripture has to say. Find people in your life who aren't simply going to confirm society's narrative to just bail, to just walk away. And instead, get curious. Find people that will help you figure out what those answers are, what scripture really has to say. And we'd love to help. We'd love to be some of those people. We'd love to help connect you with some of the people that can help you wrestle through these issues. Evaluate where you are at this continuum. Maybe you're not interested. We invite you to discover a deeper, more meaningful walk with God. I think there's others of us here as well who are stuck maybe at that third step that I talked about at the beginning. You know, in Christ, we prayed a prayer. We're saved. We're in. We haven't really progressed beyond that. And the Christianity that we're living is not producing the kind of fruit that's going to attract from others from the outside or retain the kids that are inside. There's a relationship between those two friends, right? I think in part, maybe we're stuck because we've taken this continuum and we've made it into a binary, right? Like it's zeros and ones, it's in or out, who's Christian or who's not Christian, who's saved or who's unsaved, who's prayed a prayer or who hasn't. When in fact, that's a really incomplete picture of how it works. It's a continuum. And I would challenge you and I would challenge myself to recognize that unless we're becoming more like Jesus, we're simply becoming more like this world. There's no camping out in this journey. You're moving one way or the other way. <laughs> That's just how it works. And as soon as we get stuck, our testimony gets stuck too. Friends, when we see record numbers of people walking away from the church, both inside and outside the church, when they're voting not interested, I think we need to recognize that maybe it's not Jesus that they're rejecting. <laughs> Maybe it's us. It might just be that what we've turned modern American Christianity into 
isn't actually appealing because it isn't actually all that much like Jesus. And we invite you, we invite me (laughs) to discover a deeper, more meaningful, more transformational, more missional, more attractive walk with God. To discover and to rediscover where we're at on this continuum. The God who made life, who is life, who gave his life so that we might have life. Let me pray for us in that journey. God, we thank you for your word, for the fact that in it we find a God who is so unlike any other God, who is so unlike this world, a God who took on flesh, who came at just the right time while we were still sinners, a God who wants to be known and has given us a means by which we might know you. God, we repent as your followers for the ways in which we've turned this religion to something that's about us. And we ask that you would reorient us, realign our hearts and our minds and our practices and our lives to be more like Christ. God, stir in us, revive in us by the power of your Holy Spirit that desire, that reality. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.